If somebody were to ring your doorbell and say, I was from the FBI and I got a few questions for you, wouldn't you want to have some kind of proof that they were who they said they were, maybe a bad something, show that he had the authority to ask those questions? Well, when God came to earth in the form of a man, he came offering proof that he was who he said he was. Beginning with the virgin birth, prophesied 700 years before this sign identified who the Messiah would be, and ending with the resurrection, which was prophesied by the psalmist David a thousand years before Jesus was resurrected. These were the bookends of the signs and wonders that Jesus did to credential the reality that he was who he said he was. And in between the virgin birth and the resurrection, many other signs and many other things Jesus did, which demonstrated and proved that he was who he said he was. Our text is really not a text. Uh, It's just two phrases. In John 20, verse 30, it says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. And then the last verse of the book of John, and there are also many other things that Jesus did. And we're going to take and look at the other sign, at the signs and the things that he did in a summary fashion here that were presented in the book of, of John, or the Gospel of John. Now what John has done in his Gospel has been to show the uniqueness of Jesus. He was not just another guru, not another rabbi, not just another great prophet or great teacher. No, he was the eternal Son of God, introduced in the first chapter as in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and this Word was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and apart from him was nothing made that was made. And in him was life. That's why he, as the creator of the one who created all things and us, he is the source of uncreated, self-existent life. Thus, he could give life in the creation. This is an incredible Uh, introduction to who Jesus was. And then throughout the rest of the gospel, he shows the uniqueness of Jesus. In Jesus, and Jesus alone, dwelt two natures, undiminished deity and true humanity, perfectly joined in one person in Christ. In chapter 20, John references his undiminished deity, verified by signs, And in chapter 21, John references his true humanity, verified by the things that he did. And this is the reason, uh, folks, that I was so wanting us to preach through the Gospel of John. Because over the last number of years, more and more frontal attacks, some of them subtle and not so subtle, as to who Jesus is. This week in the internet, I saw front page, Jesus was married and had children. New manuscript has been found. Uh, the Da Vinci Code a few years back. 
All of this kind of stuff has just been recycled about every 50 years or every 25 years. This stuff gets recycled. But many people buy into this and they really are confused about who Jesus is. Jesus is the issue because he was uniquely God in human flesh. Father, I pray that this truth would be indelibly sealed in our hearts and in our minds. And every one of us here who are followers of Jesus Christ, sooner or later, are going to be called upon either to defend or to explain, to answer questions as, well, who is this Jesus guy? He is God, the creator, and final judge who died on a cross to make it possible for us to know him, to know eternal life, and to be spared from the consequences of our sin. May we, Father, be clear on that. And may we be able to articulate who Jesus is to those that you bring into contact with us along the way. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For some reason, it's not forwarding. Maybe it's because I have it turned off. You think? We're going to look, first of all, uh, at the proof of Jesus' deity. And as we do, I want to begin by looking at the nature of the proof. The, The evidence that John brings is selective, not exhaustive. Notice in in verse 30 of chapter 20, he did many other signs, but he selected these. Actually, there are going to be seven that we will see. And he did this in the presence of his disciples. The events were actual, not theoretical. We do not have here a book of fables or a series of of religious speculations. We have credible, verifiable miracles recorded by actual men of history who were eyewitnesses on the spot in time, space, and history. This is not a collection of fables. I would challenge you, I would encourage you, read the Book of Mormon. Read the Muslim Koran. It will open your eyes to the uniqueness of the Word of God. And then the third thing here is the purpose is clear, not vague. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. There's no doubt, no no ambiguity, very straightforward, right, right in your face. This is why I wrote this gospel, that you might believe and you might have life in his name. Now a couple of chapters over, further into the Bible, chapter 2 of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he said, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was attested by God, credentialed, proven. How? By miracles, wonders, signs, which God did through him, as you yourselves well know. Now, What were these signs? We know why. What were they? First of all, 
Seven miracles or seven signs. The first one, Jesus proved himself as, as, master, over, as master of quality. In the, what is it, the uh, second chapter of John is the miracle of the wedding feast of Cana where Jesus turned water into wine. And the master of the feast said to the bridegroom in verse 10 of chapter 2, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have, set, you have kept the good wine until now. When he changed water into wine, it was the best wine ever made. And it says the, the disciples there believed in the next verse, verse 11. Jesus showed himself master over quality, or master of quality, and master of distance. In chapter 4, verse 46, the ruler comes to Jesus and asks, well, I'll just read it. Uh, a certain, uh, verse 46, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick in Capernaum, about 20 miles away. And as you read on through here, he says to him, go your way, your son lives. He didn't have to have a healing line and interview the people that were going to be healed that day. No, this person was 20 miles away, and he says, your son is healed. And the nobleman believed, and he went his way. Jesus was a master of distance, and Jesus proved himself master of time as well. In verse 5 of chapter 5, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. Jesus healed this man because no problem is so long-lasting that God cannot address it. 38 years like that, the man was healed. And I would just say that there's no problem so old, so long, that God cannot address it even if it seems like an addiction that is impossible, no matter what it is, God is fully capable of addressing it. No problem is so long-lasting that God can't address it, and no problem is so large that God can't address it. <clears throat> Jesus proved himself also master of size. In chapter 6, verse 10, Jesus has retreated to the mountainside to get away from the crowds. Well, the crowds sort of like followed him. And in verse 10, we read, Jesus said to his disciples, make the people sit down. There was much grass in the place, so the people sat down in number about 5,000. The verse before he had five small loaves and two small fishes. And he prayed, blessed that food, and fed 5,000 people with 12 baskets left over for the 12 ushers. Quite, a, quite, a, quite an offering they received. In verse 14, it says, <clears throat> Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, these Jewish people certainly had this in the background of their minds. 
because it said, Truly this is the prophet who is to come into the world. In Deuteronomy 18, in beginning of verse 9, he says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of the, of the nations who cause their children to pass through the fire. They practice witchcraft, soothsaying, interpretive omens and sorcerers, conjectures, conjure spells. They consult with mediums and spiritists and all of that kind of stuff. We're talking Ouija boards and carrot, car, carrot, car, tarot cards. Carrots you eat, tarots you play with, I guess. And, and uh, astral projection and spirit guides and all that stuff, which is from the occult. No, you shall listen to the prophet. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, capital P, like me, from your midst and your brethren. You shall hear him. That's what they were saying when they said, this is the prophet. Jesus also proved himself master of nature. Chapter 6, verse 19. So when they had rowed about three or four miles... They saw Jesus walking on the sea, and drawing near the the boat, they were afraid. And I say this respectfully, but any God worth his salt could walk on water, wouldn't you think? Well, this is the true God, fully capable. If he was able to speak the universe into existence and sustain it by the word of his power, Certainly he could walk on water if if he were the true God. And I want to say this too, that the one who created the laws of physics is above the laws of physics. If he created them, he's certainly greater than they are. And the true God would be beyond the laws of physics and could walk on water. After all, he created the laws of physics. Jesus proved himself master over misfortune. In chapter 9, verse 1, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Jesus healed him. Sometimes God takes a misfortune and changes it. Other times, he changes us. In both instances, he knows what is best and does what is wise, both for the one with the misfortune and for his own glory. I, I never forget a fellow by the name of Roland Beechler, who contracted MS at about age 18. In his early 30s, I once heard him say, I thank God for my disease. Because were it not for this disease, I never would have turned to Christ. Jesus also proved himself master over death. In chapter 11, the story of Lazarus, verse 43. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And the next verse it says, they loosed him. He'd been in the grave four days, and by now he stinketh. Old King James English. I love stinketh. 
That's a good word. In verse 45, it says, as a result of Lazarus being raised from the dead, it says many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did believed in him. Many believed that day, but most did not. The very ones who believed and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord on Palm Sunday, cried out a week later, crucify him, crucify him. And I think that simply goes to say that no matter how many signs, no matter how many wonders, no matter how, no matter how many miracles, unless our heart is turned toward God, no amount of evidence will change the mind. The change of the mind begins in the heart. But the evidence is there. Jesus presented seven signs, and with them he brings forth to substantiate the evidence seven witnesses. And the first is John the Baptist. In chapter 1, he said, as he saw Jesus coming, he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And God had told him, The one upon whom you see the Spirit descending in the form of a God of a, of a dove and remaining upon him, he is the Messiah. John the Baptist had not met him yet. And as Jesus approached, he said, Behold, the Son of God. Uh, I better read it. The, uh, he just said, he referred to him as the Son of God. Uh, verse 34 of chapter 1. I have seen and testify that this is the Son of God. And then further on, Nathaniel, who said the same thing. Behold, Jesus, the Son of God. And then in chapter 6, a fisherman, good old Peter, in verse 69 of chapter 6. Jesus was talking to the crowd, and he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one come to me unless it has been granted to him by, the, by my Father. Well, you know, I've seen that over and over again, and I know some of you here might stone me for saying this. But unless God, the Holy Spirit, draws somebody and brings them, one whom the Father has chosen, Ephesians 1 says this, unless the Father draws them, they will not come. We don't like to hear that. It goes contrary to what we believe about free will. But it's what Scripture teaches, and it's what Jesus said to the crowds. And in verse 66, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was his testimony. Jesus is then called forward as the star witness in chapter 10, verse 36. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Back in chapter 30 he said, I and my Father are one, and they took up stones to stone him. Over and over again Jesus declared, said of himself, I am the Son of God. I am the Christ. For a person to say that kind of thing, it would be blasphemy, unless it were true. Next, a homemaker is called. Chapter 11, verse 27, Martha. 
And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. And then in chapter 20, the one I like the most, the skeptic Thomas, who was not present when Jesus appeared to the twelve in the upper room. There were only eleven there. He was absent. And he said to them, Unless I put my finger in the print of his hands and my finger in the side and see him with my eyes, seeing is believing, touches believing, I will not believe. Eight days later, Jesus appeared to them again. Thomas was present, and his words were, My Lord and my God. And I love verse 29, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that be you, and that be me. The signs and the wonders were all there, and they're verified for us by the witnesses recorded in the words of Scripture. And then in verse uh, 31 of chapter 20, again, John is writing, and he says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That was the testimony of John. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Christ. Jesus is God. Jesus is Creator. He is Savior. He is final judge. He is the giver of life because in Him and Him alone exists uncreated, self-existent life. And only He as Creator can do all of this. This is who we are talking about when we say Jesus, not just another guru. The substance of the evidence was seven signs. The substantiation was seven witnesses. Now, what is the significance of all of this? Well, I've already expressed much of it, but I think best expressed the significance of this evidence is found in the words of Jesus himself. In Exodus chapter 3, Jesus revealed the Hebrew name Yahweh, or Jehovah, I am, the self-existent one. In John 8:58, Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. And the significance of all of this evidence that John has presented in his gospel was to validate that Jesus was the eternal I am recorded in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush when Jehovah says, I am. That's who I am. That's my name, Yahweh. And as we look at the New Testament, we see that Yahweh revealed as the I am is Jesus. And seven times Jesus joins I am to a metaphor. Twenty-three times in the Gospel of John, Jesus says I am. But he, but he introduces himself with a metaphor seven times. I am, for example, the bread of life. In John chapter 6, verse 30, What sign will you perform then, that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to Him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, 
and he who believes in me shall never thirst. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, the Lord is speaking through Moses to the children of Israel, saying to them, The manna was given after I tested you and tried you, and in your hunger I gave you manna, but all of this was a test so that you could learn that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's in the Old Testament. Jesus quoted it in the New Testament. But he is the true bread of life. He is also the light of the world. In chapter 8, Jesus at the temple, standing probably very close to the giant menorah, which was at night lit up the, the temple compound. It was a symbolic picture of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that led the children of Israel through the Old Testament. It was the Shekinah glory representing the presence of God. And it was there that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then in chapter 10, he says, I am the door. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who, goes, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the, do- by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. And then verse 7, Then Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. As a, as a child, about the size of the ones that were up here, we had this little chorus that we sang, One door and only one, and yet its sides are two. I'm on the inside, on which side are you? Great theology and a profound question. Either, as you sit here at this moment, you are in Christ, or you are outside of Christ. But there's only one door. It's Jesus. He is also called the Good Shepherd. Chapter 11, verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Oops, I'm in the wrong pew. Chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. As the Lamb of God, Jesus gave his life for us, the sheep. And he is the resurrection and the life. Chapter 11, verse 23. Then Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he shall die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. No resurrection life, no eternal life exists apart from Jesus. And then Jesus said again, I am the way, the truth, And the life. No man comes into the Father but by me. That sounds pretty exclusive, doesn't it? You know, all of these 
these metaphors, every one of them, I am this, I am that, every one of them have one thing that draw them into a unity and make them one. One common characteristic. Every one of them are exclusive. There's only one door. There's only one good shepherd. There's only one who is the light of the world and the bread of life. There's only one who can grant access to the Father because he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. And that is why Peter in Acts 4.12 said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must. We must be saved. And finally, the seventh metaphor that Jesus used of himself, I am the, the true vine. A vine is the source of the life that it sustains. Jesus is the true source. There are many vines out there, but only Jesus is the true vine. <clears throat> well, that's the evidence verified by eyewitnesses and validated by the very statements of Jesus himself. No man could make these kind of claims unless he was a blasphemer, as the Jews uh, charged him with, or he was who he said he was. And only God could accomplish the things that we saw as evidence. Now this evidence has been submitted, and it demands a verdict. That's the kind of evidence it is. It's exclusive. But in order for God to have accomplished this rescue mission of man, he himself had to be a man. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, it says that he divested himself, he emptied himself of the independent exercise of his divine prerogatives. He limited himself, in other words. He came in the form of a man. And though he was God in human form, he only did that which the Father directed him while he was here on earth. Every once in a while, his divinity would slip out where he would walk on water or perform a miracle. But by and large, he lived as a man, as you and I. And John briefly weds Jesus' deity and humanity in chapter 21. <clears throat> Viewed historically, Jesus demonstrated his humility as a man. When the disciples were bickering about which one of them would be greatest in the kingdom, Jesus got on his feet and washed their feet. He got on his knees and washed their feet. The servant is not greater than the master, and yet the master got down in humility, in his humanity, and washed their feet. There's more going on in that passage than just that, but certainly that. And then he identified with human need in chapters 14 and 15 and 16, begins in chapter 14, don't let your heart be troubled. I've got your backside. I've provided everything that you need. I'll take care of your concerns, and I'll do so eternally. And in more ways, he felt, he experienced the need of and the reality of what it is to be human. He wept, he loved deeply, he grieved immensely, and he agonized in emotional pain at the Garden of Gethsemane. 
That's why in Hebrews chapter 4, it says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace, of His grace, because He has experienced everything that we have yet without sin. And He sits at the right hand of the Father today, making intercession for us as our great high priest. Jesus came, as we already saw, as prophet. He came as priest. And he's coming again one day as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And may that day hasten. Thirdly, he provides for spiritual loss. That is the whole point of the Gospel of John. The, the, the last five chapters focus on the last week and his death on the cross for our sins. And if Jesus were not who he said he was, that sacrifice would have been meaningless. Now I love this one, the friendship the development of human friendship. Peter, bless his heart, he denied Jesus three times, but after his resurrection, as he met them in Galilee by the sea, he puts his arm around Peter and he says, Peter, we're still friends. I love you. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me, Peter? I love you, Jesus. Feed my sheep, he says. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Three times. I think it was Justin that was preached on that. Three times Jesus allowed Peter to make up <laughs> for the three denials. The friendship that Jesus developed with Peter was incredible, and his closest disciple was, was John, who was writing this. But Jesus here is showing forgiveness, deep acceptance, and affection for his friend Peter. In verse 25, the last verse of our text, says there were also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written by one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. <clears throat> Viewed practically, when Jesus Christ is the subject, books are continually unfinished. This side of heaven, the last word will never be written. And in Colossians 2, 3, we're told that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we use this expression, uh, I want to pick your brain. Well, I want to stay close to Jesus all through eternity and uh, get a little wisdom and knowledge because he is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. When Christ is the subject books are continually unfinished. And when Christ is the object, lives are continually changed. The twelve disciples were not the kind of men that the average person would choose to be his followers after he left. They were, for the most part, a pretty ragtag bunch pretty disorganized, confused, and bickering, and, uh, you know, several of them were smelly fishermen. Uh, I identify with those guys. How about that, Bill? You identify with that? But you don't smell, right? Just on fish days, okay. <clears throat> you know, something happened. The death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the grave did indeed pay the penalty for sin. And these, these 12 disciples, they, 
they followed Jesus and something changed. When Jesus went back to the Father, the Holy Spirit came and baptized them into the body of Christ. And they were changed men. When Jesus Christ comes into a life, he truly comes into a life. Change follows. Yesterday, I heard Al Kidder give some of his testimony. Uh, I wish you could all hear it. God made dramatic change in his life when Jesus came into his life. Is that your testimony? I, I trust it is. And, and I think for most of us, we don't recognize how dramatic the change is until we get out in the world and see what God has, how God has changed us. I want to read for you here. Uh, most of us probably never have never um, considered what happened to the apostles because it's not written in Scripture. But I want to read about several of them here. Peter preached the great sermon at Pentecost, established the church in Jerusalem, set up the theology that Paul developed. Finally, Peter, with submissive spirit, was crucified upside down with praise coming from his lips. And his crucifixion was at the hands of Nero. James, son of Zebedee, was faithful to the end, then beheaded for his faith. Philip labored for Christ until 54 AD when he was scourged, thrown into prison as a cripple, and crucified. Matthew served in Parthia, Parthia, Ethiopia, among the cannibals until 60 AD, when he was bound, covered with oil, and set on fire. Andrew, the bashful brother of Simon, didn't end his life bashfully. He became a preacher in many lands. He was the first missionary to Russia, Scythians, most barbaric people of the day, taken under arrest, scourged, and was brought to an X-shaped cross. He replied to the cross, Hail, precious cross, thou hast been consecrated consecrated by the body of my Lord and adorned with his limbs. I come to thee exulting and glad. Receive me into thine arms that he who redeemed me on thee may receive me by thee. Then he was crucified. Thomas, doubting Thomas? No. He was the first missionary to India, imprisoned, tortured by pagan priests, and then killed by being repeatedly stabbed with spears. John, he ministered faithfully in Ephesus for many years. He founded the churches of Smyrna, Pergamos, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and Thyatira, the seven churches of Asia. John was taken prison, prisoner by the emperor who throw, threw him into a, a cauldron of boiling oil. He miraculously escaped, but with scars. As a result, he was viewed superstitiously by the emperor, who sent him into exile on the island of Patmos, where he wrote 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, the Gospel of John, and the Book of Revelation. Finally, hunted by enemies who finally found him, he was buried alive for his faith. I could go on. All of those martyrdoms show how the life of Christ changed these 
backward, um, ragtag bunch of disciples into mighty warriors of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John on the island of Patmos wrote these words. They're found in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And I think this is the end game of the Gospel of John. Herein is love. Not that we loved him, but that he first loved us and gave his Son to be the propitiating, atoning sacrifice for our sins. Father, I thank you for Jesus. Father, if he were not who the Gospel of John proclaims and portrays, our faith would be useless. We would be, as Paul said in Corinthians, of most men, most to be pitied if Jesus were not the Christ, if he had not risen from the dead. But Jesus is the Christ, and indeed he has risen from the dead. Therefore, Father, our anticipation of the blessed return of Jesus Christ is not in vain. And I would pray, Heavenly Father, that we would take the evidence and filter it not through our mind, but through our heart. That in our heart, from our heart and in our mind, we might bow the knees of our heart to Jesus Christ and accept him as our Lord and as our Savior. These things I pray in Jesus' name, amen.